From the valley of the jolly Ho, ho, ho Green giant Good things from the garden Garden in the valley Valley of the jolly Green giant Summer green snapped and fresh Kitchen sliced to taste their best Tender beans are coming from the valley that originated, the ginger gene originated with Neanderthal. So with us here uh, our, in our end of the year special, our our very first guest ever in, uh, in Grimerica, Efrain Palermo, who just published uh, his first novel, Alien Cartel, just, what was it, just a week or two ago? Yeah, yeah, it just came out about a week and a half ago. It's been out for a little bit, for a little while. It's a Kindle ebook version, but it's available now as a paperback. That's great news. Are you there, Graham? I'm here, man. Yep. Yeah, Graham, uh, I, I've only had a chance to read the first two chapters, I must admit, but Graham, uh, Graham you finished it up already, I think. Yeah, man, it, it was it was really good. I liked it, uh, Ephraim, because especially I, like, I'm interested in all these different things, so you really kind of incorporated a lot of different uh interesting bits in it like i was thinking it's almost like uh like jason Bourne in close encounters of the third kind and and it, it meets he meets blow and the grant and the godfather with like a twist of uh ancient aliens and shamanism in there and it's really really cool yeah yeah i mean that's all the stuff that we're interested in and in my science fiction story i try to put in elements that we're familiar with yeah, and you, it seemed like you did the research because you had to have a lot of, uh, it sounded like you had a lot of little factual things right in there too when you could, you know? Yeah, the whole idea was to immerse the reader into the story, you know, just put in as many real facts as I can just to make it more real. Uh, for example, like the, the way I, I, my first idea for the story uh, came about when I was watching a show uh, on National Geographic about cocaine submarines. And there were these two DEA agents <clears throat> that were following the trail of this cocaine submarine to the jungles of Columbia. And so, you know, I had a, a what if moment. I said, what if a UFO crash landed in the jungles of Columbia? You know, and from there, this whole idea just came to me, just coalesced like bam. I mean, the, I had the whole idea like <clears throat> the beginning of the story, the middle of the story, and the end of the story just came to me right there at that moment. Yeah, it's kind of a different scenario than a UFO crashing on Roswell or landing on the, on the White House lawn or, or crashing in front of an Air Force base. And so this is a different scenario. Like, what if it landed and got into the hands of a drug cartel? You know, and so this whole, this whole image, this whole picture just came to me. And once I had the idea, I sat down and I wrote out the whole story. It took me like about six weeks to write it out. <clears throat> and then I was just showing it to friends and say, hey, you know, it's kind of writing this science fiction story, you know, check it out. And most of the people that I my friends, they don't read science fiction. They say, okay, whatever, you know, we'll check it out, we'll read it. And then once they read it, we're going, wow, this is actually pretty good. I didn't think science fiction was like that. But also, they were going, you know, what about this character? What happened here? So just by the questions, the story just evolved and got bigger and bigger. Yeah, then uh, some of the comments were like, well, you know, the characters seem real, and they got really immersed into the story. And uh, yeah, so, so it just grew, the story grew from there. Yeah, it was great, and so far the response has been pretty good. 
No, yeah, yeah, it's going pretty well. Uh, people who like science fiction like it, like the story. People who don't like science fiction uh, like it. So uh, I think it's doing pretty good. Yeah, you know, I get more into like, uh, spiritual things as well. You know, like I posed the question, if humans have past lives, do aliens have past lives? You know, so it gives you stuff to think about. But I throw in a lot of things like <clears throat> ancient aliens, you know, alternate history, uh, things that happened in the past uh, affecting our present and can affect our future. Is this a newfound uh, niche for you? Instead of looking at pictures of Mars and shit, you're, you're going to start writing some, pumping out some novels? <laughs> yeah, yeah, actually, well, you know, when I, when I was wrote my paper on, Mar on Mars, you know, my Martian stains back in, the, in 2000, I was really immersed in the Mars stuff then. You know, I was uh, involved with different groups. I was checking out the images almost daily. You know, and actually at that time, I, I got this idea to write a, a science fiction novel based on Mars. And, uh, you know, so I sat down, I wrote, you know, I wrote one page and that was it. I mean, that's as far as it went. I don't even know what happened to that piece of paper. But, you know, so the Mars study at that time took over. So this is, yeah, this is a whole different thing right now. I think right now I'm getting away from that and actually want to be a novelist. I want to be a science fiction writer. Yeah, and then the difference this time is that I had to hold, like, the whole idea. I was, I was inspired. This inspirational moment just hit me. And I had the whole story in my head, you know, from beginning to end. And uh, so as I was writing and I realized, you know, I was writing it on, I wrote this, this, you know, I'm almost done with Alien Cartel. And I realized that there was a sequel behind it. And then as I kept going along, I realized that I was actually writing a trilogy. So the next book in the series is going to be called Tides of Retribution. Oh, I was going to ask. Yeah, yeah, because I kind of leave you hanging at the end of the story of Alien Cartel, and you, and you realize, oh shit, you know, this is not over yet. Yeah, and then the the sequel gets is based actually 1,200 years into the future, so it gets more advanced technology, and I play around with some ideas, uh, some things are familiar, some things are kind of different, but but my idea though it also is, is to is to write uh, a science fiction in the future that that shows the evolution of the spirit instead of just technology. You know, the trend right now with science fiction is uh, transhumanism, you know, where the, in the future we're going to be cyborgs, you know, like, a, you know, be part machine or part Google eyes or Google brain. <laughs> yeah, the idea is, is, you know, when you parallel the evolution of, of technology, you have to also evolve the human mind, you know, because otherwise it's going to get lopsided. You know, what's going to happen in the future if we keep along this trend? You're going to have, you know, monkeys with iPods. <laughs> hey, right, you know, because if you don't involve the human spirit along with technology, it's going to get really lopsided. So in, in my story, you know, the, the theme is the future in this future uh, scenario is that the, the human spirit and human civilization is evolving alongside uh, the technology evolution. No, that's that's really cool. It's a bit of a niche there with uh, that's one of the things I really liked about it is your sort of spiritual type shamanistic uh, you know, incorporating that into your into the whole science fiction part of it. Very cool. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. And uh, you know, actually, I was, uh, RPJ was uh, in, in a recent episode was talking about how science fiction is a method of telling a story. And you know, so you know, I think that a science fiction novel or a good story has a moral tale. It has something that it's, it's getting a message across. And the last part of the series and the uh, the trilogy is actually the prequel. And it's set in Rome in, in 79 A.D. 
So now, so you you see the movie Cowboys and Aliens? Well, this is Romans and Aliens. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, are you working on that right now? Yeah, yeah, I'm working on the sequel right now. So it's about halfway done, and then I have an outline for the prequel. When can we expect to see Alien Cartel the movie? Hey, hey. well, hey, if anybody out there is listening, uh, can write a screenplay. Look me up. Uh, I think we'll make a great movie. Maybe Grand America can get a cameo. I'm telling you, I, I was picturing, when I was reading that book, I, I, the whole thing was very easy to picture in my mind, and, and I definitely pictured it, uh, you know, like the movie scene going along with it. It's, it's uh, very easy to do that with that book. Yeah, thank you. You know, I get that from a lot of my readers. And I, actually, you know, when I was writing this book and I was showing my draft around, uh, people would describe things to me from the, from the book, and, you know, going on for about five, ten minutes, and I realized... Wow, they're getting all of that for only a, you know one or two sentences, you know. And to me, that's the magic of reading: is getting your imagination fired up. Uh, yeah, I don't know if you ever experienced this. Uh, you know, you read a book and you go see a movie, you know, from the book, and, and never meets your expectations. No. Yeah, your imagination is more powerful, more 3D than anything you can ever see in the theater. And that's what I'm trying to do as a writer, you know, because I've been a science fiction reader for a long time. And now I'm writing something, so I want to give that to, to whoever's reading my book. It's in part that, that imagination, you know, that, that, that fire up the imagination. And just get new ideas going, you know, just get a new, new thing going on in your head. Yeah, so, you know, my story, you're, you're reading along and, you know, you're reading about the Colombian cartel. And, you know, you, this happens and that happens. And, uh, and pretty soon you, you're down this rabbit hole. And you go, fuck, how did I get here? So you kind of backtrack a little bit, you know, you kind of, no, oh, okay, it kind of makes sense when you read forward. And then you just go along for the ride. You know, then when you get to the end of the story, you realize, wow, that's actually a, a pretty good story. Yeah, so for the price of a movie ticket and a box of Raisinets, uh, you can have a, a theatrical experience, you know, reading, reading this novel. You know, that's my goal as a writer is to, is to give that, that experience. Yeah, we'll make sure we link to, uh, <coughs> to where you can get both the paperback and the electronic version uh, in, the, in the show notes. And... Um, I think you said you were going to send a signed copy over to the Igloo to add to our repertoire. Oh, yeah. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah. As soon as I get it, I should get it today or Monday. Hey, as soon as I get it, I'll send it up to the Igloo. Nice. Yeah, and it's and it's on Amazon.com right now. Uh, if you went on there and did a search for Alien Cartel, you can find it. Or go to my website, PalermoProject.com. I have direct links to it as well. Yeah, and this is something I just want to touch upon right now for a little bit. Uh, a recent podcast you had with the, the higher chat guys at THC, uh, they're talking about the, the indie movement of uh, you know podcasting and how you know with the internet, I mean you're free to express yourself and do whatever you want to do, you know, without being hampered by the media. Yeah, so the same trend is happening with, with in the print industry with publishing. Uh, you can actually self-publish and, and be able to do it. And you don't have to run through the hoop, you know, and go through the thread of the needle, you know, some publisher, uh, you know, that might control, try to control what you're trying to say, so you have a lot more freedom. Uh, another thing that helps, too, is the ability uh, to print on demand. Uh, you know, because in the past, you know, if you wanted to make some money, you know, you self-publish, then you, ha you know, you have to print like, you know, 10,000 books, right, to bring the cost down per book. But if you only sold 100 books, you're screwed, right? You got you know, over 9,000 books that you have to get rid of. And now you have a pretty expensive paperweight. So, you know, so you have the freedom now with, you know, with being able to express yourself as a writer. 
by now, but when you self-publish, the, the now you have the problem of marketing. You know, so that's the only thing that you know you get away from when you don't go to a publisher. So, but really, what makes a book successful is the story itself. I mean, no amount of marketing is going to make a book really sell, you know, that well. So, so that's why I'm doing this. You know, you know, through the podcast and doing what I can. And the best thing is, is if someone out there buys my book and reads it and likes it, and they promote it and talk to, to another uh, friend about it or whatever. I mean, that's how it gets around. And so that is the same way, you know, with podcasting like you guys are doing. You know, someone likes your podcast and mentions somebody else, or you get another podcast that likes it, and they give mention to it. So there's a lot of freedom now, you know, to express yourself. And I'm taking advantage of that as, as a writer. Yeah, and uh, so by the spring, I should have uh, the sequel uh, completed, uh, Tides of Retribution. So for all you readers that uh, get Alien Cartel, and you like that, you're going to be in for quite a ride with the next book coming out. Can't yeah, wait. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. I'm going to wait till the, because uh, I, I think I have it in PDF, but I'll wait till the I'll, to read the actual book. I, I always prefer the actual book over electronic. Yeah, yeah. Actually, you know, when I first uh, published the book, it came out as a Kindle ebook. Hey, you know, the sales were okay. It was kind of low, but, but you know, recently, a, a week and a half ago when I got it, as a paperback, I mean, it really started selling, selling well. So, yeah, you know, I'm old-fashioned. You know, I like having a, a book in my hand, you know, something solid, something that can read, turn pages. Yeah, maybe that's a dying uh, a dying breed. <laughs> but I'm, I'm right there with you. I'd rather have books on my shelf. They'll still work after the apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you need to stay warm, there you go. You got, you, you got something you can make a fire with. Yeah, well, uh, before we let you go, Ephraim, since this is kind of uh, our end-of-the-year special episode, um, and as uh, our first guest, and as I know you're uh, a fan of the show as well now, um, I suppose we just wanted to ask you if you had uh, maybe a, a favorite episode uh, in our first year and maybe someone that, uh, a wish list for our, for year two. Well, yeah, that, that, that's a hard one because you have so many good shows. Uh, there was one re- that I listened to recently. Uh, I forgot the guy's name. Is talking about, uh, yeah, about the holograms. Oh, Jim Elvidge. Yes, yes, yes. I really liked that. That was a very thought provoking, and the guy was, was really well spoken and really thought out. Uh, you know, and I always had that feeling like the the physical universe was was an illusion. So that, yeah, that was a very good uh, good podcast. Yeah, but you guys have a wide spectrum of, of subjects and people that you interview. They're, they're all really very good, but uh, yeah. But for upcoming episodes, uh, maybe try Stanton Freeman. He's always has uh, interesting things to say. Uh, yeah, yeah. And if you want a kick in the ass guy, I think you should try Richard Hoagland. Yeah, I wonder if he's still around. Uh, Do you have his? E- wonder if I can track him down. Yeah, maybe you should. Uh, you 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 are involved with those guys, right, Efren? You yeah. should uh, hook us hook us up with Hoagland. Yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I get a hold of him and mention it to him. But uh but yeah, but you I mean the 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 podcast subjects that you cover was just such a great range. I mean, you had I like the one also where you did the one on Egypt. Um, you know, even though it was kind of political, you know, it was appropriate to the to the time, to the moment. You know, you, you had the stuff in the economy. So it's really a really good mix, you know, what you guys are doing. Yeah, and from the way it started to to how it evolved now, I think you guys have a great future. 
that's great to hear refrain yeah thanks buddy thanks for thanks for coming on again thanks for the book thanks for uh you know just about for for helping us get the ball rolling here in grand america and you're welcome back every time any time of course we're going to uh throw your book on the website and a link to to where to buy it and uh yeah and then of course when the number two and number three come out you can you can definitely come to grand america and we'll spread it as far as we can yeah, that's great. And then uh, I'm probably going to go to the UFO Congress coming up in February. So if you guys can make it, maybe I'll see you there. America. It's the end of the year kind of wrap up episode, and we've got Darren as usual and Jagger on the line from Eastern Canada. Can I say? Parts unknown. Central Canada. Oh, is it central still? It's just a still a long way away from us. Yeah, it's east of anything east of the Alberta border is Eastern Canada to me. <laughs> no offense. <laughs> That's true, right? <laughs> whoa, whoa, there. <laughs> so, uh, how's it going, Jagger? Good, good. How are you guys? Happy New Year to you guys. Yeah. Happy New Year. So we just uh, thought good. we'd get you on as our, uh, you know, like part of the genesis of this whole podcast. So it's uh, you're kind of uh, grandfathered in as a American, and your music's on the episodes. And what's your thought of the first kind of first year kind of thing? Well, thanks for uh, having me on again. I uh, I uh, I'm a fan of the show. Um, I have to say. Um, I think you guys have had a good year and a, a meteoric rise in the uh, the world of podcasting. Was that mediocre? Did you say um, mediocre rise? No. <laughs> oh, meteoric. Meteoric. Oh, that's oh, much better. Nice. Yeah. Is that what I? Oh, can I? Can I just? Can I? Can that prelude into something? I saw a fucking meteor. I think it was a meteor the other night, like uh, New Year's Eve or New Year's Day. Now it was right. Came right over the city. Now I don't know what it was, but uh, Darren, do you remember when I was driving home that day from your place and I told you I saw this shooting star type thing? Uh, yes. So it was almost exactly the same as that. So picture a falling star, but it looks like it's in airspace, and you can see like twinkling things, like sparks coming off it, and then it just fades and disappears. Son of a bitch. So that's twice now in the city I've seen something like that. So I don't know. It's really just strange. Anyways, I thought I'd been meaning to talk to you about that and just... I haven't been using my Sputnik. I gotta fire up that fucking Sputnik app again and see see when shit's going down. Is it clear out tonight? I think it is, eh? Yeah, maybe. Let me see what the fuck's going on here. So anyway, Jagger, what was your, uh, what was your favorite uh, episode uh, in 2013? Uh, I actually really enjoyed, uh, I'd have to say, the first episode with uh, Ephraim uh, Paul, 
Palermo, who I actually, uh, I think I ended up appearing on a subsequent podcast with him. Um, sort of listened back to that one. I find him to be a really interesting guy. And uh, for a first po- podcast for you guys, I thought it was a, it was a good uh, start, you know. That's and, funny. Uh, Ephraim's actually going to be on this episode as well, talking about his new book. Yes, I've been uh, I, I've been actually uh, checking it out, getting emails from him and stuff about it and whatnot. So it's actually uh, yeah, I've become a bit of a fan. So I really enjoyed that, and also your uh, talk with uh, um, Micah Hanks, um, the mouth of the South, UFO singularity. Yeah, yeah, that, really, that was, yeah. yeah that was a good one. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think I got a good buzz on during that episode. Actually, if I don't. If I if I do recall, I think I, think I drank a Mickey or whiskey. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if I don't recall, that's if I yeah. And then fucking we couldn't record it. Micah had to record it for us and email it to us because oh yeah, that's crazy. It's a mess. It's a good thing it's Micah and he's a great guy. Otherwise, we would have been in real trouble. If, if we'd have been one of our guests, like you know, some guys, some of these guys would have just been like, "Well, I don't know what to tell you, boys. <laughs> See you <laughs> later." Is that when you stopped drinking during podcasts after that one? Uh, I'm not sure. I think I had a couple during the Grant Cameron one. Yeah, probably. Well, I'm still not against years. it, depending on the guest. It's just, you know, it's a hassle. Yeah. That, that that time I still had that bottle of fucking big bottle of whiskey my buddy bought me. But now it's like to me for me to actually go out and buy booze is kind of a stretch. <laughs> I'm a grass guy. Grass fed. So you got any suggestions for us in 2014, Jagger? Um, I was actually talking to Darren about this, but uh, a phenomenon I sort of came upon, actually. Uh, came um, upon? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> this phenomenon I came upon uh, called ASMR. And um, actually, I just want to bring up the uh, what that acronym stands for. But it's like... You ever heard of the term like a head orgasm? Like you, you get tingles in your head, you know? Yeah. Um, so ASMR. I haven't heard the term before. Autonomous sensory meridian response. Oh. And it's a it's a a phenomenon characterized as a distinct pleasurable tingling sensation in the head, scalp, back, or peripheral regions of the body in response what? to visual, auditory, what? olfactory, and or cognitive stimuli. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's been happening to me. Brainstorbating. Yeah, yeah there's <laughs> actually, like, there's different triggers that sort of um, start this off, like like people whispering and stuff. So there's actually these people. <laughs> or the, or, Did that make you come upon it? Or it's a it? and singing bowl. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> so... No, it didn't work, Darren, that time. Oh, well, we tried. No. So, Jagger, keep going, because this is fascinating to me. Oh, yeah, this is good it's stuff. Been, it's been happening to me for about a year and a half now. Yeah, so there's these, I was I was saying there's these uh, people that are called, they call themselves ASMR artists, oh, and no, they actually make videos on YouTube, and they, they like whisper, like the sound of whispering and stuff, and soft-spoken intonation into a camera or sound recording device. Oh, come on. Maybe I should just take back what I said already. And these are sort of triggers that sort of get the, this like brain orgasm. Like that's, <laughs> that's what people call it. Oh, nice. I what like was it. it called? What was it called again? A- ASMR, autonomous yeah, no. sensory meridian response. 
Okay. Perfect. I want I want me some of that. <clears throat> Does they did they say that it happens during exercise a lot with music because that's what happens to me is when I'm usually usually when I'm exercising and some songs will do it like right off the bat. Graham's just having brain orgasms all over the place <laughs> when he's out jogging. <laughs> Watch out for this guy. What about that, Jagger? Yes. Yeah. Well, maybe no. No, it's, I, it's more of a whispering phenomena. Yeah, it's more of a, like I'm just sort of reading about it, but there's sort of there's different triggers. And yeah, because you said visual and auditory, right? Like goal-oriented tasks. Like I get that feeling when I listen to music at times when I just listen to music, you know. Yeah. Sometimes, like yeah. I, I understand what they're what they're saying, but it's almost as if, and I think everybody's had that experience where you suddenly get that feeling, like a tingle, like an overall just good good sensation in your head, you know. Yeah, but it also can travel through the body, like from yeah, the, yeah, the, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. it's like, what, what sort of triggers these things? It could be like memories, like yeah, um, yeah, smells, smells, yeah. Uh, the, the but you know, like haircut. Like I'm just reading the, the examples here, like descriptive sessions in a similar style to like guided imagery for ex, you know for experiences such as haircuts, visits to a doctor's office, and ear cleaning. Whoa. I just cleaned my ears the other day. With those, you know, you, you get those fucking drops and you put them in there and you have to hold your fucking head on your side for like 20 yeah. minutes. Yeah, yeah, I did that. So I still don't think I can hear any better. You didn't use the ear candles? No, I was looking for that shit, man. I could never find them. I've heard about them, but I've never tried it. Yeah, I I've think never even got, seen it. They're probably got banned because too many yeah, motherfuckers lit themselves on fire. Yeah, yeah, I remember them from like 15 years ago, and now they're nowhere to be found. Whatever happened to good old Darwinism? <laughs> anyway, um, that's fucking. We should find a dude about that. We should find a brain orgasm dude. Yeah, totally. I want to know more about it because, like, honestly, there's certain songs. There's about two or three songs that I listen to usually at any one time that'll just trigger that right away for me. Yeah. Do yeah, they, me do, too, man. Do they talk sure. about, does a song ever trigger, like, crying for you at all? <laughs> it's, I, I, I want, I, yeah, like. Come on, you can say I've anything. Never, I've never America. really thought, I know, I know, I never really <laughs> thought of it, but. Yeah, I, I have had that where it's like, it just, it just feels so good, like, hearing it that. You have like a physical reaction to it. Yeah. You know, yeah. and I've definitely had that. But it's not all the time, though. You know, it's maybe it's just when there's a certain mood or. Yeah, or when whatever. The, yeah. When the moon yeah. is full. Yeah, or something, you know. <laughs> but they really emphasize the, the, the people that are into it that it's not a sexual thing. It's just, it's calming and relaxing. Okay, so it is, it is a positive. Uh... Yeah. Thing, yeah, and it's right? yeah. it's not. Uh, yeah, and it's not a, a sexual thing. Hmm. Darren, you're yeah. quiet. I was looking for a soundbite, but <laughs> it's yeah, not. It's, it's not happening. But yeah, we should find a guy on that. I'd like to figure out. I'd like to hear more about that. It's all about stimulating your brain, man. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I think it's a, yeah, it's a sense of it's a sort yeah, sort of working your your brain in a certain way, sort of like meditation, right? Yeah. Or, you know, uh, I understand that you guys are going to be uh, hitting up the deprivation chambers this weekend. Yes. Yes. So um, this will be interesting. I just stimulate my brain a couple times this weekend. 
I met uh, I met a, a girl on New Year's that does meditation meditation she's uh she actually had to do some sort of paper on it too where she had to do all the all this research into the scientific evidence and she wants to come on the show too and talk about that i told her we want to do a show on meditation so she's like fresh into the digging into all the scientific uh yeah results so that'll be good that would be good i think meditation is like yoga was 20 years ago like meditation in the next five ten years is gonna just keep pervading our mainstream culture mm-hmm. pervading that's a good choice of words for this last little couple of minutes anyway on that note uh jagger we'd like to thank you for for popping in and and uh helping us reflect a little bit on our year thanks, thanks for as me. always for the music and we should try to have on maybe a little bit more in the in the new year yeah well uh my band uh, high school sweetheart i'm gonna throw in a plug here our album's coming out january 25th uh www.facebook.com forward slash high school sweetheart all one word uh you can check out some music there january 25th january 25th we will uh, we maybe uh down the road you can throw us a song or two and we'll, we'll play it for the guys absolutely for the listeners the guys and gals i suppose there are no women that listen to this show yeah there's a couple one or two my wife listens and my mom Okay, thanks for coming on, Jagger. We'll talk to you again soon. (laughs) Okay, thanks for having me, guys. Okay, take care. Have a good Next up in Grimerica, we'll be chatting with Red Pill Junkie and uh, Jared Drake, both uh, familiar familiar voices here in Grimerica, uh, to kind of reflect on, on the year that was. Uh, but first, how's it going, Graham? Hey, it's going good. Nice to be here, guys. Happy New Year, everybody. Happy New Year, Happy motherfuckers. Feliz Año Nuevo. How are you guys doing? Great. Good, good. good. Really excited, you know, of, of starting the new year, you know, of all the things that... Uh, we hopefully we will be able to do in the America show. Right on, yeah, we are too. So that's what we're going to talk about. Like, what are some of your highlights from uh, America's last eight months of 2013, and what are some of the things you guys want to want us to try or want us to do for the near? Uh, highlights. I'd have to go with the uh, the into the mushroom. I thought that was fantastic. That was a highlight for me too. <laughs> yeah. Mind, mind altering, mind opening. It was just great to to be uh, um, part of that. That was really cool. 
Yeah, that was great to have you guys on there. I've I've heard from some friends back home in uh, in Vancouver and stuff to say, yeah, that was an epic episode, and it seems like we really did something out of the ordinary there. It was cool. Yeah, it was a fun experiment. It was innovative, creative, you know. It was uh, interesting to to, uh, partake of the kind of uh, joint experience, you know, of, of hearing... And Darren and his friend, you know, uh, entering that altered state of consciousness and trying to report back to us as best they could. Ground control, the major tongue. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was maybe next year we'll uh, do a sequel. Acid. Yeah, I don't know about mm-hmm. to do it any acid. That would be interesting. Maybe I could find <laughs> maybe, someone else. Uh, doing it on a more natural. Uh, you get a little digital recorder and go do it out in the bush with a bonfire. In a sarcomantium. Yeah. That mm-hmm, might yeah. be a bit much. Yeah. It could <laughs> so be what a else, bit much. Uh, what else from the year, Jared? Any other ones that uh, you... Uh, what's his name? Is it Robert Sullivan the fourth? Yeah, the Mason. Yeah. Yeah, always freaks me out. There's um, I, there's a nice drive that I go on down to the beach in town, and um, it goes past the Freemasons building. Like there's a building here, it's a, you know their clubhouse. Yeah, and there's incredible security going up to that, and uh, just gives me the willies every time I go past it. Cause, and that's I don't know if that's fair or not, but you, you just don't know enough about them. You you try to. But you'd still have your own perception of what you think they get up to in there. Yeah, totally. My uh, my cousin's a, a Mason too, and he. Uh, I was surprised. He he thought the episode was pretty good too. I didn't know what he would think about it, but uh, mm. we kind of bantered back and forth and all that about whether he really disclosed anything or not. And it's hard to know whether um, if this is a thirty-second degree, like so. What's in the 33rd, right? Maybe there is some secrets up there that you don't find out about unless you actually make it all the way up there. Mm. I thought I was just honorary, though. That's how they play it off. Yeah. Maybe that just yeah. means you have to be hand-selected. Invite only. But then, you know, <laughs> you, you, you put it all together, you hear all these different stories about yeah, the, the different clubs, so to speak, you know, things as far as um, like Madonna, for instance, up in the, you know, with her and Kabbalah and things like that and having her own DNA crew and stuff going behind her. You just, you don't know what some of these people are really up to at that point. Yeah, true. Hmm. Maybe we should have Madonna on. Yeah. Good luck. That'll get the ratings up. Yeah, no, yeah. no it's, it, it's not Madonna anymore either. It's MDMA. Oh, even better. Isn't it? Yeah. M-D-N-A? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Not, that not M-D-M-A. Back to I just like That's, that's going like to be the substance like of our next episode. It'll be M-D-M-A <laughs> with M-D-N-A. Yeah. Who's doing that? Not this guy. Not yeah, this round, round table. I only eat stuff that comes out of the dirt. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's good. So what about 2014, Jared? Any uh, anything besides um, MDMA with Madonna? Um, well, that will be the highlight. Um, apart from that, uh, really got a few good ideas for some blogs. Want to get into that? Want to? Um, 
I've got everything set up here quite nicely for myself to get really stuck into some decent research and um, coming up with a few angles of my own. So there's a few few ideas in the pipeline, so I'm looking forward to getting stuck into those. We can't um, wait to hear about them. Mm, yeah, definitely be um, all over all over your site with you, you know. So, yeah, it's a great outlet. Yeah, that's great. We can have you on and talk about some of these uh, researched topics. Mm, yeah. I've um, I've tried to taper things, you know, with my work and, and, and everything like that to be able to dedicate a bit more time in those directions. So I'm looking forward to it. Cool. Yeah. Are you there, Red Pill? What about you? Yeah, yeah sorry for being uh, so quiet because, uh, <laughs> yeah, I've been having so, uh, uh, a bit of sound issues. Uh, would you please repeat the question? <laughs> we were just uh, wondering what your favorite, your favorite, kind of your favorite moments of 2013 are and what you, some stuff you hope to see or hear in the 2014. Well, I love to say that I think that the Grand America show had one hell if people, you know, just listening to one episode would never think that this is actually our first year, you know, due to not only of the the, the quality of the production that Darren managed to to, to, to provide, but also but uh, the the type of uh, the lineup of of guests uh, uh, you guys managed to. To, to obtain, you know, for, for the episodes. As for my favorite episodes, I think that, and no disrespect, like I said, no disrespect to the other uh, guests, because I think that they were all, even even if uh, maybe I didn't manage to agree with what most of, a lot, some of them said, you know, 100%, but I think they were all very interesting. They were all very, uh, very uh, valuable things to say, but my my three favorite shows so far has been uh, the one with Dennis McKenna, and the one with Grant Cameron. You know, I mean, he's one of my favorite uh, ufologists in the whole world, and also the one with uh, Mr. Stanley Kribner. You know, uh, he's his uh, all details about his friend Rolling Thunder and all the uh, uh, research he, he he's managed to to do through uh, through all his deca decades of uh, as, uh, in, uh, investigating uh, parapsychology that was a very fascinating episode and still at it yeah still at it yeah. Yeah, I'd have yeah, to agree with you there. The kind of people who don't know the word retiring. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. So what about next year, Red? <clears throat> Besides you coming on a little bit more with us. Well, you know, I mean, I think it's... Uh, what's, what else should we have on the Great America show that maybe we haven't uh, really touched upon yet? Mm, on on the top of my head right now, I could think of maybe uh, cryptozoology. Bigfoot, yeah. I don't think we, yeah, big, well, not only Bigfoot, but also maybe, you know, uh, you guys are in Canada. If you could manage to find someone who's looked into the case of the Champ, Ogopogo. the Lake Champlain monster, Ogopogo, you know, on the Lake Okanagan, that would be awesome. Road trip. Road trip. Bring yeah. your golf clubs. That sounds. <laughs> That sounds great. 
maybe we we'll, could also uh, we could also touch upon something more of a uh, on a more of a paranormal streak, you know. Maybe talk with a couple of ghost hunters. Yeah, that's another avenue. We I think we only had I think Chase was the only really ghost person we had on. Yeah. Yeah. And we haven't really had a cryptozoologist at all, I don't think, have we? No, no, we have to do the Sasquatch one. I was uh I was emailing our, our new blogger Justin about that um cuz he's he's been into Sasquatch for a couple of years, so I was asking him what his thoughts were on that. Sam Squanch. Mm-hmm. And I want to do more of a spiritual. I want to do a couple episodes on meditation and get a little bit more spiritual. Maybe one on vibrations and that type of stuff. I don't have the ball. No problem whatsoever with that. <laughs> What's that? I don't have the ball. Oh, you don't have the ball. The vibration ball. Well, I wasn't ready. You got to cue me. <laughs> <laughs> you lost your your bowl. Your Tibetan bowl. That's just. It's so it's in, in studio. It's just not in my hands. Mm. You should, you should always keep it on your hands, man. That's why you don't raise your vibrations enough. Yeah, that's it. I'm a slacker. <laughs> well, I wanted to to thank you guys for for um, being with us through this whole journey, like for the last eight months. I mean, it's been it's been fascinating for Darren. I know I can probably speak for Darren on this too. Is just just having you guys along for this journey and and just getting to know you and and ch- chatting about all these different things. It's been. Like, we didn't even expect it, really, eh, Darren? No, it's been great. It's been really eye-opening, and I uh, get a lot closer with some new friends. You know, uh, Jared, Jared, we just kind of met through the show, and that's been great. And Red, we kind of knew we've known for a little longer, but it still gives us an excuse to get in touch a lot more often. <clears throat> that's been fantastic. Real privilege. Yeah, I completely agree. It's been a, a great uh, enjoy in the, the, the chance we i've had of uh, trying to contact you guys when through skype uh, uh, once twice to, uh, once a week you know to, uh, to, to discuss these things because that's why that's why all of us i think uh, decided to enter into this crazy field Hey guys, today here in Grimerica, we're going to be chatting with author and um, I believe even an archaeologist in his own right, uh, Fritz Zimmerman. But first, as always, how's it going tonight, Graham? Hey, I'm doing good, Darren. Nice to be here. I've been wanting to, to chat about giants and this type of thing for a while now. And the Nephilim. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. I'm excited. Um, and uh, uh, he was hinting in the pre-show about a bit of numerology as well. So um, that stuff really fascinates me. I don't really know fuck all about it, but it, it definitely fascinates me. Yeah, so we have uh, Fritz Zimmerman here. He's an independent researcher, author, and antiquities preservationist. Um, he's He's been researching this for about 10 years, and he came up with his two-volume work, The Nephilim Chronicles. 
And it's pretty much the most complete reporting of all of the giant skeletons unearthed throughout the ages across the globe. And so volume one is uh, Fallen Angels in the Ohio Valley. And then volume two is a travel guide to the ancient ruins in the Ohio Valley. So uh, we're going to have lots to chat about here. Welcome to the program, Fritz. Uh, Thanks. Yeah, glad to be here tonight. So I guess to start off, um, I've been fascinated by this giants, uh, giants thing for a while, but I, but I really don't know much about it. And it's one of those topics where, like, we, t- we talk about all kinds of crazy stuff on the show, like, you know, UFOs and consciousness and, and, and whatever. But even uh, that stuff is kind of mainstream compared to some of the stuff that you're researching here. Like, if I was to just chat with uh, people day to day and tell them that there's, uh, you know, evidence of, of uh, giants being unearthed, they would... It's, it's a tough one to get across, right? So um, I guess let's start with, uh, with, with, I guess, your research into these chronicles and, and how you ended up sort of changing direction. Uh, well, uh, like most things, you know, that are large or big, they start out small and with no intent of actually ending up where you inevitably do end up. But... Uh, where I live, we have the second largest genealogical library in the United States. And what that means is that I have access, no matter where you live in the U.S., I probably have your county history about five blocks down the street from me. And in those county histories, they would sometimes have a section called antiquities, where if there were burial mounds or certain things that were found in that county, they would report that, and that would end up in the county history. Well, there are hundreds of these accounts where they were digging into mounds or somebody was digging a cellar, and they came across skeletons that range anywhere from seven to nine and a half foot. And I was researching the mounds, and of course in researching the mounds, I was in the county histories, and so it just started to snowball, because I kept finding large skeletons. And while they're found in almost all 50 states, they're predominantly, like 70%, 75% of them are in the Ohio Valley. And of course that's where the Adena Hopewell culture is, that's where all the largest mounds, geometric earthworks that uh, utilize pi and square root for their construction and so what was unveiled was really a civilization that in every essence you could call that because of the science and technology um, that was used to construct the ceremonial center so very multi-layered um, finding the giants took about four years and then figuring out where all the giants came from was about another seven years. Wow. So pretty extensive. And so the book is really in two parts. There was one wave of giants that came here with a people called the Maritime Archaic. These were the last remnants of the Cro-Magnon species. And they came over here about 7,000 to 2,000 BC. That was followed by the Adena better known as the Beaker people, the same people that built Stonehenge, the same people that are mentioned in the Bible in Genesis 6-4, where it says there were giants in those days. And that would take us to about 3,000, 2,700 B.C. That wave comes over here. So there's really two waves of giants that came over. Both actually were 
remnants of the Cro-Magnon species. In the book also I have about 10 accounts of them finding 20,000, 15,000-year-old Cro-Magnon remains that were seven, eight foot tall. So that certainly was the gene pool that would inevitably be the rest of the giants that would be documented in my book. So it's more scientific where we look at skull types, um, skulls with occipital buns, skulls with uh, protruding brow ridge, sloping foreheads, um, massive jaws, almost Neanderthal-like, and where we can match these things up across the globe from the biblical Levant through Europe, um, predominantly in England and around Stonehenge, associated with the Beaker people, and then eventually over into the Ohio Valley. Wow. So, so um, geez, I don't know where to start after that. Um, so the seven foot to nine foot, so it's funny because I, so I listened to your audio book, it was it was fascinating, but it was it was quite the the historical account, like just just account after account after account of these bones being being found and dug up and and uh, you know somewhat disappearing. And it's it's too bad I didn't have the actual hard copy of the book because I know it would be like a reference book of uh, you know if you ever need to go back and find information on these. So you were looking back through. Um, you know, old newspaper articles and all that. So, so what did you find out about all these giant bones being discovered? So, did the Smithsonian come and swoop them all away, or like how how is this not part of our mainstream culture right now? Well, um, yes, there's probably at least I haven't even I haven't actually counted, but I would say there's over a hundred accounts where um, they had found these large skeletons. And it would be a note at the end of the history or a newspaper article that said, the Smithsonian is en route. They're coming to get these skeletons. Now, the Smithsonian would say, oh, well, all the skeletons, they were all oaks. None of them were that large. So, you know, that was a hoax. And so they're the ones that perpetuate that myth. But what's interesting is if they were all oaks, why in the 1800s, where it wasn't easy to get to a small town, Indiana or Ohio, why were they coming all the way from Washington, D.C.? Yeah, good to point. To get these skeletons? <laughs> yeah. So it kind of defeats what they're saying, what they're still saying today, what the universities are saying today, are saying that every one of those accounts was a hoax. Well, then why was the Smithsonian coming, and why did they keep coming? Because they come to like five or six and found out that there was a, a, a mammoth, bone or something or, you know, wasn't human, why did they keep coming? But they kept coming. And you'll read account after account after account, Smithsonian's coming. And, and, and when, after that, they just disappeared. No one ever saw them again. And when was this? In the early 1900s, late 1800s? Yeah, you know, a lot of the county histories were done um, from 1880 to about 1910. Um, a lot of the newspaper articles will run, you know, 20s, 30s, 40s, um, somewhat limited because of copyright laws to keep the, you know, the dates back somewhat. But, uh, um, yeah, turn of the century. Now, what's interesting is is that people were telling what I'm going to say is the truth before archaeology was established in the universities, which happened in the 1930s. 
at that time, the line came out, no, there was no giant race. All the mound builders were Native American. That became the line, and everyone stuck to it from the universities to um, government officials. And that is when the free speech, free knowledge, free exchange, that was put to a halt. Hmm. Up until up until fairly recently, like you you and, and obviously some other people have been digging deep into this over the last decade or two, I guess. So is that when it started to come out a little bit more? Uh, well, I think my book has more than anything that's ever been published. I have over 300 accounts, and I don't think anything even comes close to that. Um, Not only that, I, I think like... I've read, if you read a, a lot of the old mythology and even like Native American mythology, the Bible talks about the Nephilim and, and, and a bunch of others, they all seem to have, have these historical accounts of a giant race too. You know, it's not just the Bible. It seems like almost like the flood myth that's scattered throughout the planet. Right. I mean, there's almost... Every organized people had some legend of an ancient giant race that, you know, survived the stories, made it into, you know, their mythology that that, in fact, was was the truth. And you know, at some point, there's always a kernel of truth in all mythology. And uh, when you have all around the world them saying the exact same thing, and what's also interesting is that they always attach kind of a demigod um, status that somehow these were the product of genetic manipulation or angels descending, which is a story in the Bible, that angels descended on Mount Hermon. They have an oath to procreate with these women. The result is this giant race or this Nephilim race, this somewhat abomination, this genetic abomination. Now, scientifically, we can look at that, and the genetic manipulation was that some of the Cro-Magnon had mixed with Neanderthal, and it was that genetic manipulation that spurred the giants. Hmm. And we find that within the skeletal remains, we find occipital buns, which you would find on uh, Neanderthal. We find the massive jaws, the protruding brow ridge, the forehead. In many instances, the, the skull types are, are actually more Neanderthal-like than modern. And that's kind of the scientific aspect that we look, and we can look at the skulls and say, yeah, this is, this is what this came from. Now archaeologists or anthropologists are saying or have said up until just a few years ago um, they had as far as the Neanderthal goes what was the theory of replacement which means that the Neanderthals were simply replaced by Cro-Magnon. Other people had what was called the assimilation model and that was that Cro-Magnon did mix with Neanderthal. Of course, archaeologists fought tooth and nail, saying that wasn't true. Of course, now we know that the archaeologists were wrong the whole time and that the Cro-Magnon did mix with Neanderthal. And if you are non-African descent, you have about 5% Neanderthal DNA in your system. Um, we know red hair. We know that originated, the ginger gene originated with Neanderthal. So again, all of this happening in the northern latitude, so where do you find red hair? You find it in people that live in the north. So some of that survived up into present day. So it's safe to say that my red-headed friends are more Neanderthal than I am? 
Um, well, they're stolen more. You may have more deep down. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, they're stolen more. Um, yeah, that is a Neanderthal trait. That's where it originated. So, uh, But we know that now, you know, that that, that happened. But, you know, like most things in, uh, in current academia, it's that they take the complete wrong view, fight tooth and nail to protect it, and then inevitably, after overwhelming evidence, they eventually will cave. And I think this is another topic that eventually they're going to cave and that there were migrations. Of course, academia is with the Beringia theory, saying that the only people that ever came to North America were eight families from who created, crossed over the Alaskan Ice Bridge and came down. And that those eight families inevitably populated all of North America. So every Native American tribe, South America, all of it, originated from about eight families, which is ridiculous. Hmm. So, so this is definitely a global phenomenon, and, and you can see them uh, migrating over to North America. You know, I think what I think I swear there's something in the, in the uh, in the headlines there just a couple of weeks ago about some new fossils they found somewhere somewhere up in Russia there that made them take back uh, Native Americans ascent into North America to like 26,000 BC or something like that. Uh, well, that very well could be, and there's certain tribes in in North America that were part of the Maritime Archaic. Now, what's interesting is, is that some of the Cro-Magnon had Oriental features to them, and you could find somewhat of a Native American Cro-Magnon-type skeleton in Northern Europe, and then across the northern you know tier of of uh, Asia on into Japan. So that maritime archaic people, um, some of them came over by boat, specifically the Cherokee, the Sioux, and the Iroquois, who are one-time one people. That is three tribes that, that split uh, about 5,000 B.C. is when they split, but they were all part of the maritime archaic. So their roots... You really don't want to say Europe because they weren't European. They were living in the northern latitude. So some of them may have been across the northern Urals into Russia and then that whole thing. But through that northern area um, are the same burial types um, in pits with red ochre. A lot of times fires uh, being included in the grave. Something called a plummet is associated with them. Um, but they had an almost identical material culture that we can track all the way around the world along with the large skeletons and along with somewhat of a primitive skull type. Now, some of those primitive skull types would become European. Some of those primitive skull types would become Native Americans. Um, so not to diminish any people. I mean, we're, we all came from that same seed, but skeletal-wise, we can, we can identify them. Hmm. Any elongated? Uh not not really of what you're thinking of if you're thinking more of uh more of the inca type or some of the ones that were found in egypt uh some of that is related but really what we're going to find now we'll jump ahead to the adena and the beaker people and the people they talked about in the bible there's a specific people called the generic and their heads are somewhat elongated but they're elongated upwards so they're almost like cone-headed looking people. It's kind of a somewhat 
description of them. But their heads are pushed up and the backs of their heads are flat. Now, that type of generic we can track from the biblical lands into the Caucasus. We also find them associated with uh, Stonehenge because generic type skulls are found in Stonehenge. And then that type of skull is very predominant in the Ohio Valley. They were all tall with the weird head types, still showing some of a protruding brow ridge. So, but you can take one from Europe in the Ohio Valley and, a, and an expert can't tell them apart. Hmm. So what, what is so special about the Ohio Valley then? Like, does there any, is there any theories on why it ended up there? Well, yeah, that's what uh, part two of my book is, is all about. It's probably the more exciting. Um, the Maritime Archaic, of course, there's lots of giants, and we, we track them across the world. But, you know, the real sizzle, because it involves Stonehenge and all the geometric earthworks in the Ohio Valley, um, the prototype every mound in the Ohio Valley, which is a mound with a circle or a ditch going around it, a hinge. Now, we think of Stonehenge, and we think of the stone. However, the hinge part is a circular earthwork, with an outer wall, an interior ditch, opposite of what a fort would be, and a gateway that is aligned to a solar event. Stonehenge, the gateway, the earthen gateway with the ditch is aligned to the summer solstice sunrise. And then we find these hinges all throughout the Ohio Valley. So the circular earthwork, outer wall, interior ditch, gateway aligned to, the, to a solar event, we find those out throughout the Ohio Valley of Indiana, Ohio, Kentucky, West Virginia. We find them in those states. We find mounds with circles around them. We find the same generic type skulls that we would find over in England and back in the Levant. Um, two other people called the Corded people because of the pottery, but we find those in England. We find those over here. And then uh, what's called Borabi, Cro-Magnon sometimes. Um, we find that as the third contingent of who built Stonehenge. Those three skull types also in the Ohio, Ohio Valley. So three very distinct skull types we find in the mounds and, and uh, around Stonehenge and throughout England and Scotland. And then we find the same three in the Ohio Valley, along with um, the hinges and the burial mounds that are identical, the conical mounds with the uh, circles around them. So some very iconic um, symbolism that you find in both those regions, along with identical skull types. So really only someone in the academic field could look at that kind of evidence and deny it. <laughs> Is that... Uh, you, you, oh. yeah, you, need a, you need a doctor to be able to deny that kind of evidence. <laughs> Is the uh, is that serpent mound in Ohio? Is that related to these mounds at all, or? Yes, absolutely. And well, it's kind of frustrating because some archaeologists found some charcoal in one of the upper le levels, and now saying that it dates to like 800 AD. That's ridiculous. It doesn't, um, because the serpent has three bends in its body, um, three turns of the tail. Um, it's facing uh, the confluence of three creeks. And then over in Oban, Scotland, we have almost an identical serpent with a lot of large skeletons found around that where we have a serpent pointing to a, a solar event. Um, it had the same kind of uh, in the mouth where the egg or the solar disk is. Um, they found the same type of charcoal. But... Um, the construction of it was almost identical. So, 
yeah, those two things we can find on uh, uh, both sides of the Atlantic also. But yeah, the Serpent Mound was done by the Adena, but I would say Adena slash Beaker people. Of course, Beaker people are the ones that built Stonehenge. So um, yeah, just another element that we can take from both sides and say, yeah, these are identical. So what what do you think happened to this race of, of giants or these multiple races of giants? Like, were they just uh, slowly dwindling away and couldn't sustain themselves? And then at, at, at one point, uh, a couple thousand years ago, they're just non-existent? Or? They were, well, over in the biblical lands, you know, of course there's a story, Joshua comes in and just slaughters a bunch of them. But most of them had already left by then. Most of them were on their way out. So some of them were heading to England. Some of them were heading here at about 1500 B.C. In England is when the Celts start moving into that region, and that kind of pushes them out of England. Some of them would stay and probably intermingle with their intermingle and intermarry with the uh, Celts. Um, Of course, a lot of the religion would still hang on. The same kind of Druid pagan religion was started by these people. And then the ones over here would inevitably mix with the Sioux, the Iroquois, and the Cherokee, because those three peoples were who archaeologists call the um, Hopewell mound builders. So here they were basically just absorbed. Now we have evidence of that because in those three people we have the highest incident of what they call haplo-X, which is a DNA marker. Now, the origins of DNA or haplo-X is in the biblical Levant around the Sea of Galilee, and that just happens to be where the giants live that are talked about in the Bible. Hmm. And all around that area is dolmens, minners, standing stones, there was somewhat of a transition around 2700 BC where they were moving away from stone circles and the minners and standing stones and all that and were going to more of what you would find in the Ohio Valley with the hinges, et cetera. Hmm. So the stones were kind of going out of out of style and then mounds would replace those and hinges. So obviously some of the giants, like the smaller ones being, let's say, seven feet or whatever, would almost almost fit in with, with us in a way. But then obviously that would be like a smaller giant and the larger ones being nine foot or ten foot would be quite uh, <laughs> outstanding. Right. And, you know, it was a large race, and but it was probably the nobility, if we could call it that, um, they were the ones who were inter- intermarrying. They were the ones who were perpetuating the giganticism, the, the giant gene. And, you know, of course, those were the people that were getting the large burial mounds and, you know, the things that we would see today. So, you know, I don't know that it's like a 100% of the population, like everybody in the population is seven and a half, eight foot tall. But there certainly was a contingent, and a rather large contingent, just because of the skeletal remains that were left in these regions that, you know, those did exist. Now, in England, and 
luckily I had actually I had uh, access to all the county histories in England also. So there's uh, 25, 30 accounts of them finding large skeletons in the burial mounds all throughout southern England, Scotland, and a few in Ireland also. Hmm. So there is documentation again of the same type of people that were there that was found over here maybe we're shrinking <laughs> slowly they did but you know they mixed with you know the Sioux the Cherokee and, and the Iroquois but just look in history who were the largest Native Americans mm-hmm. well the, the Sioux were mm-hmm. um, specifically the Osage and the Osage even have legends that they inhabited the Ohio Valley at one time I know people say, well, they never did. It's like, well, we're talking 2,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. So, you know, don't give me your 1800s history and say, well, they never lived in the Ohio Valley. It's like, well, they did 2,000 years ago. And the Sioux had the history of being mound builders, as did the Iroquois, as did the Cherokee. I wonder they where were the, burying their dead in mounds. I wonder where the Ojibwe Excuse fit into that. Maybe I'm part Nephilim. <laughs> well, actually, Ojibwa does have high rates of haplorex, mm. and what's interesting about that is the reason that they came here in the first place was that 2700 BC is the beginning of the Bronze Age, and they needed copper and they needed tin. Well, the best copper with uh, the, the most pure copper in the world is Isle St. Royal, 99.9% pure. Um, ten deposits were within 30 miles of Stonehenge. So these Nephilim, also known as the Amorites in the Bible, were metal traders. They were going everywhere trying to find this. So what brought them here was the copper. What brought them to England was the tin. Um, the Ojibwa were up there in that Lake Superior region, and certainly may have mixed, may have been part of the mining operations where they were pulling 50,000 tons of copper out of Isle St. Royal that's never been accounted for. I mean, they'll find maybe a, a copper emblem here and there in mounds, but no one's ever come even close to figuring out where all this copper went. There's 10,000 mines up there. Maybe that's all 10, the wiring for the 10, Great Pyramid. Well, a lot of it did make its way back there. I've even read that they have found uh, Lake Superior copper in Egyptian bowls, but again, because that's not part of the paradigm of academia, you're you know you're not going to hear that on the news or or anything like that. But, so you're I mean, saying it has been found over there. I wonder if it isn't the remnants of some like you could see how if like some shit went down today and there wasn't much humans left, like. Maybe there was just a few of these giants left on an island, and they had a little more better technology, so they were cruising around while the rest of us were still living in little huts and shit and gathering up all this copper. And maybe it was Atlantis. <laughs> well, well, there is, you know, there is some historical provenance to that that theory because in the Book of Enoch, when it says that the angels came down, it says that they gave the giant race secrets. Now, one of those secrets was how to make metal. And another one of those was how to make weapons. And we know the Amorites, historically, when they were controlling Babylon in 1950 BC, developed high mathematics. So pi, square root, all of that stuff 
is 4,000 years old, but it emanated from this giant race. So um, the laws we have, Hammurabi, he was part of that. Laws, the first laws of, of, of the world were developed by these people. Um, they use the duodecimal base 12 numbering system. When you look at a clock, when you look at a calendar, 12, 12s, all those 12s belong to the Amorites. I mean, they exist today. Even part of their language exists today. A lot of the Latin root words actually came from Samaria and, and Babylon. So they did. They were more advanced than anyone else. They had the weapons technology. They had the mining technology. They had shipping technology to and go out and find us when nobody else could. So, they were three feet yeah, taller. They were more you, advanced. And they could just kick the shit out of you if you tried to stop them from taking your copper. But I guess at that time, oh, yeah. the... The locals really didn't have a much of a use for copper yet. They were just kind of starting to figure it out. Probably well, from watching these giants. Yeah, there was a copper age, but that was, you know, if you were in battle and one guy had a copper and the other guy had bronze, you definitely wanted the bronze. So copper was quickly being replaced. So you're and, saying, and, oh, sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, well, just about the mines. Like you said, there's thousands of old copper mines in that area tens of thousands tens of thousands and there was like 50,000 tons or something some incredible amount that was actually mined out of North America and shipped somewhere else in the world or or moved somewhere else in the world and nobody really wants to talk about this no because that would if you talked about it that would say that you believed in diffusion saying that somebody else came over here so if nobody came over here except eight families across the Alaskan Ice Bridge, well, they couldn't have been mining copper. So, you know, why Why would they be moving? There was one instance in the book that I have. They were moving this 5,000-ton rock of copper up to the surface. Oh, I remember now, this. Why would, you, why, would you, why would you have 5,000-ton piece of copper and the manpower that must have taken to dig around this thing? Why would you be doing that if you were going to make an earring or a ring? <laughs> yeah. yeah, you just it? busted You probably didn't need a... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you could find that stuff on the surface back then. I mean, if you wanted a copper ring or something, you didn't have to dig for it. I mean, it's just laying on the surface. I bet you that shit will turn going up after Egypt. It. Um, well, there's the thing about um, the marker on I'll say uh, royal copper is that the one impurity is silver, and so it'll have tiny little silver specks in it, and they have found that in Egypt. I wonder. So it it was it was making its way over there, and if yeah that and you know everything is economics. I mean everything gets done and invented and because of economics there's money involved in it well here's the same case there was money involved in it. that's what was bringing them over here eventually they were getting thrown out of the biblical lands they were getting thrown out of england and this is really the last bastion of that nephilim giant race that they talk about in the bible so it all ended here but it ended kind of you know ungloriously they basically were just absorbed into the whole book culture and uh, you can believe the Wallamolan that there was some wars with the Algonquin people that were coming in from the north that probably shattered that. Um, we know 535 A.D., uh, Krakatoa blows. 
um, creating a nuclear, basically what is a nuclear winter for like three years. Um, Rome fell 535 AD. Teotihuacan, South America falls. We're seeing civilizations go. It just so happens that the Adena Hopa culture in the Ohio Valley falls at about the same time. So that might have had a lot to do with just the end of these geometric earthworks being constructed. I'm going to throw something crazy out there, but has anybody thought that maybe Bigfoot or the Sasquatch or these these uh, other sort of paranormal race of giants, if or you know people would say paranormal is bad, they're, they're cryptozoological, but anybody thought that maybe that's a, a lost race of these uh, giants that just sort of had to move into the woods or the snowy hills of Tibet or wherever you find these abominable snowmen type Sasquatch? Well, some people allude to that, and they're just absolutely wrong. No. I mean, these were humanoids. They weren't furry creatures living, you know, in the woods. However, if you go to a more spiritual aspect of the story, um, the... Well, there's something called the fairy race, um, and they're tied with the mounds in in England. They're somewhat tied to the mounds here. Um, this dealing with the spirit world, the story in the Book of Enoch is that there was this fairy race who didn't really have a problem with Lucifer when he rebelled, and it made God mad, and God sends them to hell. And about mid-flight on their way down, he changed his mind, and he condemned those spirits to earth and they became spirits wherever they landed so if it was, they landed in water they were water spirits and if they landed in the woods they called them wood or wild men spirits and they have this egress underground they're tied in with the mounds they're tied in with these hinges um, my theory has always been that if there's Bigfoot that they're more related to more of a supernatural phenomena that they can come and go, manifest, disappear, move around pretty much at will. And I'm not a real big Bigfoot follower, but from what I've read, they certainly seem to follow that pattern. Yeah, it's funny. Where they, and they can move around in a woods, they can be in front of you, then be behind you, then be on the side of you. Yeah. So I think it's more of a spiritual manifestation. Yeah. But it could it's kind of tied into that giant theory because now what's interesting in the spiritual aspect of the mounds and earthworks over in England and here is that they believed in what's called ancestral worship 
That means when they constructed a mound and they put people in it, people no longer were considered individuals. They were considered a collection of spirits, like a collective, like one being. So the the people in the mound were actually just a kind of a force unto themselves. But people would go to the mounds and pray. But the important thing is that their spirits never left. The spirits never went to Valhalla. They never went to the happy hunting ground. They stayed right here. So when you go to a mound, those spirits are there. That's That was where you went. You really didn't leave. You were there to guide and protect your people forever. And it has something to do with, if you're into the paranormal, paranormal is why is Ohio the most haunted place in America? Why is the most haunted place in America Moundsville Prison that just happens to have the largest burial mound at 70 foot in its front lawn that had a woman that was about 7 foot 8 and a man that was over 8 foot, two skeletons in that one mound, hmm. right in their front lawn. So there is a connection between the spiritual world, the burial mounds, which are doorways to the other world, and Ohio being so haunted. There's this, There were 10,000 doorways, burial mounds there. That means there were 10,000 doorways to the other side. That's why Ohio is so haunted. That's why Indiana is so haunted. That's why West Virginia is so haunted. I mean, those states are by far the most haunted in, in the United States, huh. maybe in the world. That's crazy. I, I mean, what's worse than poked. what's worse than being haunted by a ghost? Being haunted by a giant ghost. <laughs> yeah, with uh, ties to Satan. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. So, um, in, where does uh, you must get a, a lot of uh, interest from the ancient aliens or the ancient astronaut crowd these days as well? I'd assume. Uh, well, yeah, you know, I've talked to a few groups like that, and um, I can somewhat substantiate their theories. I mean, I'm not, I kind of leave a door open for that, because, you know, you have the the, the angels descending onto Mount Hermon to create this race of giants. Well, if you're, if you're a believer in the Bible, you're going to say they're angels. If you're a believer in um, ancient astronauts, you're going to say they were aliens. So I like to leave some interpretation up to the reader and say, well, all right, well, I can get you here and I can give you the evidence that this happened. So your interpretation of exactly who those angels are is really up to you. So yeah, we're, we're on the same page. Are there any uh, are there any fossils or, or remnants of a giant accessible today anywhere that you know haven't been hidden away? Uh, there are a few. There's a few pictures that I have been able to find of you know the giant skeletons and some mummified remains. But um, you know I got to give our government um, credit because they did a pretty nice scrub. On this. Would you even call and the government, that, or was it more of, uh, you know, institutionalized sort of uh, <clears throat> corporations kind of beyond the government in a way? Well, you know, it was the Smithsonian, and the Smithsonian was, you know, before, you know, archaeology leached into the universities, I mean, they were it. But, um, 
the head of the Smithsonian was sympathetic to Native Americans, and he said anything that links these mound builders to other races and diffusion and all that, it's like, get rid of it. We don't want that. That's not going to be our line on America's history. So, you know, all these guys were sent out. You know, in one instance, um, in Brewersville, Indiana, it was kind of a slip-up because one of the Smithsonian um, agents told the woman um, this skeleton was nine foot, and she asked him, she was like, well, who are these people? And she says, well, he goes, well, this was an ancient white race that used to live here, and we're just going out and we're forgetting their bones. So he told her what they were doing. Wow. But he said, it was like, this is an ancient white race, and yeah, we're coming here to collect them. You know, we're getting them all. And it was such a fantastic find. Somebody find a nine-foot human skeleton, you know. People would go, appear in the newspaper. So a lot of times they would say, you know, hundreds of people were coming by every day to see, you know, these remains. It would be displayed at the local hardware store or something. But they would catch wind of that. Yeah, they would come and get that, that skeleton. I wonder why they would say white race. Just to help them get some ownership over the land in some fucked up, perverted way? Or seems weird. Well, I mean, the giants, um, you know, like I said, the Hopa were Native Americans. Um, they had some infusion of Cro-Magnon or Caucasian blood in them. We know that. Um, but, you know, the giants themselves, yeah, they were a Caucasian race. They were white skins. The Indians talk about them. Um, the Cherokee, the Iroquois, the Sioux, the Algonquins, they talk about white Indians. White Indians were that were gigantic in size. Hmm. Wow. So light skin, white skin, um, they talk about them. What about the Vikings? Well, you know, that's so politically un-PC now. We, you know, that's not going to see the light of day. I mean, not on your local television channel anyway. <laughs> yeah. BFIs. <laughs> so, what about uh, the Vikings? Then, I guess, is that part of the Celt the Celtic part that you're talking about, or is that? No, that's all much later. You know, yeah. it's all been done by then. You yeah. know, we're we're talking okay. we're talking an end date of five thirty five A D. So, right, right. Yeah, that's way 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 right. down the road. Okay, okay. So now, is there is there a bit of a, a movement here to 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 do some more digging or uncover things? Is there is there people sort of behind the scenes looking to find some um, some fresh evidence here? Um, well, you know, if you got caught digging, they'd put you away longer than they did Nelson Mandela. Um, no, you're not allowed to dig. You're not allowed to touch anything. Now, archaeologists can dig. Right. They've destroyed tens of thousands of mounds. But, you know, to their credit, they have come up with a theory that they don't know who the mound builders were, they don't know where they came from, and they don't know where they went. So $80,000 and a four-year degree will get you that bit of information. So they don't know anything. They're not willing to say anything. They're just dummying up on the whole topic that they don't have any answers for it. And I am very anti-dick. I'm... Yeah, leave the mounds alone. You tug into 10,000 of them, you have no answers. These are, you know, these are antiquities. These are something that was built 2,000 years ago by an advanced race. What will, what is served to destroy it? So you're, we should leave these as icons for future generations. So you figure that they've already covered, yeah, they've already covered it up. They're already going to continue covering it up. So why keep ruining them? That kind of thing. 
Right. I mean, if your theory is you don't know who they are, don't know where they went, don't know where they came from, what's going to be served by digging into another mound except it's grant money for archaeologists, which is all that is being done. An archaeologist will get a grant to destroy a mound to write a paper that will agree with the guy that gave him the grant. I mean, it's just become an industry of destruction of America's antiquities. So, uh, And since they're the only people that get a license to dig into a mound, um, yeah, stop it. Now, there are some sub subsurface tombs that didn't have mounds where they found giants. They found graveyards of giants. So I don't know. I'd be as, as opposed to somebody just stumbling onto something and then expanding the dig. Of course, if I did that, you know, I wouldn't touch one skeleton. I would photograph it and then cover it up as methodically as I, um, you know, dug it into it. But I would never remove or destroy or anything of of a mound. Why? Why is that? So, Spiritual reasons or or more uh, scientific reasons? Yeah, a lot of it would be not to disturb a burial, but what's served by putting a skeleton in a box and taking it to the university? And if you uncovered it and said, all right, you know, this guy was buried in a sitting position or extended position. These are the artifacts that he had with him, photographs of those. And then you covered him up. I mean, you would have the same information as destroying the mound, putting the bones in the box, putting uh, some of the artifacts in a box, and putting the really good ones, of course, in your pocket for sale on eBay. And, um, you know, no one ever sees it again. Yeah, the Smithsonian go to, has... university and go to your local university and say, I want to see your uh, collection of skeletons you've taken out, taken from mounds. Good luck on that. Yeah, they've got enough skeletons in their closet. <laughs> Literally, they do. Well, but there I, will be something that'll surface. Well, I hope so. I mean, the people would say, like, people listening to this might say, "Well, that's, you know, you 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 would need to remove that in order to finally uh, bring evidence forward to change this paradigm." But I mean, I understand where you're at, where where it's kind of past that point. Right, and even if you did, I guarantee, if you dug a hole in your backyard and found an eight foot human skeleton. They're going to tell you it's a fake. Yeah. Guaranteed. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder. The government's going to tell you that. The universities are going to tell you that. And they may arrest you for just digging it up in the first place. But it will be a hoax. Even though it's real, it will be reported as a hoax. And since people believe what's in the newspaper, people believe the universities, and people believe the media, it'll, it'll die right there. So are they still turning up today? Is there is there you know the odd case here and there that turns up on the internet? Like do you keep an you must keep an eye out for that sort of thing. Yeah, it would be tough. You know, people are. If you did that, you know, you would you would be under some grief to do it. You know, um, yeah. I don't know. I think people are a little scared of that. And, you know, we just don't, we're not digging the mounds up like we used to. I mean, it used to be, a, I mean, people would go to church and they would dig into a mound after the services. You know, there were so many of them. There was 10,000 mounds in Ohio. Now there's 100. So, you know, what are the odds of us finding something, you know, starting with a base of 10,000? Now we're down to 100, just a, a fraction. 
of that. Hmm. So, you know, a lot of it's already it's gone. So speaking of people believing the media and, and what they read in a newspaper and all that, I, I think that's changing. I think people are seeing through the, the lies a bit and they're, um, I, what, what's your thought now that your book's been out? You spent you know over a decade doing all this research in the last. I seem to ask this all the time for our guests, but um, do you see it shifting or changing over the last you know two to five years or even ten years? Uh, well, I'm not sure. You know, I'm seeing more people writing books on my topic, so <laughs> I'm thinking people. <laughs> so I don't know. There's there must be some interest out there because there's probably been about I don't know ten books. There are about Nephilim. There's different books about giants and and that. You know, I don't think they have them what I have, but um, but I'm just seeing the topic seems to be getting more popular. Yeah, I so, think I'll yeah, turn. Yeah, you know. I've, I think alternative media and, and just things like this where we can have conversations and, and you know, without anyone really controlling it, it. Yeah. is helping to spread the word a little bit and getting getting people interested, it seems. Yeah, and, you know, I've gotten, uh, you know, uh, good feedback from the book just because of the line that I took that, you know, it's not just a list of giants. It's, I don't know, 20 chapters of of different things that we can we can take across the globe. Like, well, you know, this is the same, this is the same, etymology, numerology, symbolism, um, material culture. Um, so there's a lot of aspects that are, you know, brought into the fold for the argument to say, we're talking about the same people here. And so you're left with like, yes, there it was the people that did migrate across the world. Um, these two different, uh, you know, migrations with the Maritime Archaic and then the later Beaker people. So, so you say it's it's spiritual, it's biblical, but it's a scientific aspect of it. Where does uh, numerology fit into it all? Well, that is one of my greatest finds, and um, this is based, we'll go back to the Amorites and I'm talking about the math and uh, that, you know, that they developed. Well, they developed this numerology codex called Jamatra, which basically means earth measures. And the two most basic numbers was 666, what represented the sun, and 1080 represented the lunar or earth mother, both of them kind of being combined into one. And we'd go to the Stonehenge and some uh, some earthworks in uh, in England, and we can tell that they were built using that numerical codex because 666 and 1080 shows up in the measurements, but very predominant in the Ohio Valley. So we have these hinges that are either 660 or 666. Uh, feet in circumference, and yes, they have the foot. Shows up at Stonehenge. It shows up here. I won't get into the argument, but um, it, it did exist. So we have all these hinges that are 660 or 666, and then we have the squares. And a square or the number four has always been associated with the Earth Mother. Squares where each side is 1080 foot on each side. Um, and that can't be by chance. 
They're trying to make an HD TV. <laughs> yeah, it just happened to show up there like that. Um, now we have some. Now this is uh, was the kicker is that there's measurements in a few hinges that were 555 feet in circumference. And if you take 555.5 and you stretch pi out way out, um, you take 555 times pi and you get, uh, uh, I'm forgetting my number here, not the 2160, but um, you get the sum total of 666 plus 1080. Oh, okay. That's interesting. Um, and 555 represented the yin-yang, um, you could call the equal balance, which is what their religion was based on. So you didn't want too much earth um, because of floods and this and that. You didn't want too much sun because it would scorch all the crops, et cetera. So you always look to have that balance. Um, so 555 represented that. That's why the Washington Monument is 555 feet high. 555 times 12 is something like 6,666. Um, so it kind of wraps around itself. But yeah, 555 was uh, that equality number. Now we also know that because earthworks in Ohio, there's some earthworks where there's a circle attached to a square. Now the circle, I mean, just imagine the size. The circles were 1050 feet in diameter. So very large. But the circle and the square were of equal areas. Well, to be able to do a circle and a square with equal areas, you had to know how to square a circle. And that's complicated. That is complicated mathematics to do that. And But that's that meaning is that the sun and the earth were equal. And so we would definitely get in a lot of the religion and what all the earthworks meant and what the symbolism was behind it. So when you go and you use my travel guide to go see all this stuff, you really get a, a good aspect of the sacred landscape, what to look for, what was important, why was this built here opposed to somewhere else. If you see a circle and square to know, you know, what that meant religiously and the numerology behind it of why was this at this length? Why was this at this length? Well, that's what the number means in that. Now, 666 is in the Bible, and people go like, oh, yeah, well, that's the devil. Well, it shows up two other places. In Chronicles, they bring Solomon 666 talons of gold. They say 600, three score, and six, but that's 666 talons of gold. Well, how do we know they're talking about the sun? Well, if we look at the name Solomon, it's Sol, which is Latin for sun, Am, which is Hindi for sun, and Am is Egyptian for sun. Solomon means sun, sun, sun. And if we take the O, which is the 15th letter in the alphabet, we go 15, 15, 15, which is probably an anagram of 1 plus 5, 1 plus 5, 1 plus 5. Solomon is 666. Solomon built a temple, and there was room on the outside so the sun worshipers could worship the sun coming up from the east. Okay, you're so, almost, keep going. So, so, in the Bible, that's what it is. Um, on the other thing, just one more thing, is the, uh, down from Revelation, it says 144,000 people will be saved. Um, if you 
divide the 144,000 by 666, you get 216 point, 216, 216, 216, to infinity. 216, well, what's the importance of that? Well, 216 is important because it's the sum total of 6 times 6 times 6. 2160, so 2160 is 1080 doubled. 2160. They were even using those numbers in that Revelations quote. Wow. Okay, so is this and all in the, your book? Yeah, so okay. how the biblical it says, and now the world had one language. Well, that one language was Jamatra. That was the language. That numerical codex wasn't speech. It was those numbers. So they could speak to anyone, and everyone would know what a 666 and a 1080 meant and a circle and what a square meant. That was the language that wow, spread across the world. That's fascinating. Huh. I, I I must have missed. I didn't realize you had so much in the, with the audiobook when I listened to it. I must have missed that part or something. But, yeah, I have to go back to that. It's kind of hard to ignore when there's so many similarities there. That's easier to look at than to hear, I yeah, think. Yeah, 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 totally. My yeah, head's kind of fucking doing loops right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, in the Sumerian icons, a circle with a dot meant the sun. It also meant number one. The square meant the Earth Mother. Go to the Ohio Valley, you have a circle and a square. It means the same thing. Well, how do we know that? Well, the circle is a 66660 or 666. The square is a 1080. So the numerology matches the symbolism. The symbolism matches the function. It all goes together. And it's not by chance. Hmm. So what, what uh, have you, are you continuing on trying to follow up with this symbolism and, the, and this numerology at all? Or did you, did you kind of stop at the end of the book there? Um, no, I'm, you know, I've got about another... 200 giant skeletons that I'm considering making a supplement. So it's going to be volume three. Um, so I'm kind of collecting those, but I have over 300 in the book. And I think I got 200, 250 new ones that I'm kind of typing away at, you know, I type it about 15, 20 words a minute. <laughs> the wind's behind me. <laughs> and... <laughs> so I'm plugging those out, finding them. But that's been, you know, the last couple of years I've been trying to get all of these new accounts. And then I think I'll, I'll put a supplement. So that's going to take us up to about 500 accounts. You just got to get Siri to uh, to uh, type it all out for you. It would be interesting to see what came out at the end of that. Of who? Type it? Siri, oh, it's just like uh, on iPhones. It's the like little. It's a computerized uh, voice that answers questions for you and stuff like that. So you could dictate, you know, talk into it and, and let it type for you, kind of thing. Oh yeah, but save, uh, save you yeah. from typing. But it doesn't do a very good job. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm thinking. I'm thinking about you know because there's some new mound sites and uh, and stuff, and I'm thinking like. Well, maybe in the spring I'll go to the smartphone. Right now I have a dumb phone. I don't have a clock on it, which I find handy. But I really don't need an app to tell me where a Chinese restaurant is. So, um, and you need a mound app so when you're driving through, you can see where the nearest mound is. 
Well, I consider that, but, uh, you know, there's so many out there and the, you know, the, the travel guide has 222. I have 85 in Indiana. If you go online, you're going to find three. And I have 85 in directions to them. And also in Ohio, in the mound guide, if you went online or there's another book that's a travel guide to the mounds, they have 70 total. And I have 222. And I took all of the burial mounds and earthworks that the Ohio Historical Society listed as address restricted. Now, keep in mind, address restricted is from you. Yeah. They didn't want you to find out about it. Well, I got all those, and I gave directions on how to get them and photographs. There's photographs of every site, so you know what you're looking for. But everything that was address restricted, that has been lifted. Hmm. So everything is now available. Is that like a freedom um, of in information process? Um, in my world, school. it is. Just you your, know, your own yeah. hardcore research, really, right? You know, I just didn't believe that address restricted, and I knew they were restricting it from, and who they were restricting it not for. So archaeologists could find out where a mound was, but if you're Joe Blow in whatever county, Ohio, and you ask about mounds, somebody say, well, I don't know where they are, but in the book, there might be something that's 40 foot in this 40 foot cone of earth. Um, that's visible from the road. So it's like, yeah, this is, you know, this is American history. American history belongs to anybody who wants to see it. So, yeah, let's just say I gave the Freedom of Information Act on that. I'm probably off the Ohio Historical Society Christmas card list. But, but, so is there anything up here where we are? to preserve them. That is to preserve them. I think people know about them that they have a better chance of being preserved. Yeah, right. Yeah. Is there anything up here uh, across the border? We're in, we're in Calgary. Um, is there anything that you know of uh, in Canada there? Well, I'm sure there is, but a there there, there are giants in uh, Canada. Yes, there are a few. Um, they're mainly around the St. Lawrence where you'd expect to find them because of the commerce of coming through the Great Lakes and, uh, you know, the, the copper trade. So um, more of the Montreal, Toronto kind yeah. of, yeah, that. Right. Okay. Not, so, not, okay. so, not so far out. Yes. Uh, I, left, but I, I think there is something out there somewhere. But like I said, they're, they're in almost every 50 states, you know, one year, one there. But, you know, you get into Ohio and there's, you know, uh, 150 accounts of them finding them. So, you know, really the, the books are talking about the Ohio Valley. The other ones I kind of noted probably as being more of the maritime archaic. So, you know, they're all in there, but yeah. it just depends on where in the story they fall. Yeah. So what do you, what do you plan on doing uh, in the f- near future here besides your, your uh, addendum there, your third book? Anything else? Um, some YouTube videos. I'm I'm hoping to do some aerial photography um, with a GoPro and a quadcopter. Maybe doing some aerials over the um, 
um, earthworks, of getting more shots of the actual solstices at the earthworks, oh, which might a good, take a couple of years. Yeah, that's a good so idea. Could be the gateways with the sun either setting or or uh, rising, you know, depending on what they did when they when they built it. So, um, more specifics, being able to spend more time at sites. You know, when I was doing the guide, I may have like 10 sites I want to hit in one day. So it was go, get photographs. I mean, there really wasn't a whole lot of time for exploration. Yeah. So, you know, to get more details possibly at some of the sites. And then, you know, just to keep promoting, promoting that uh, this does exist. Yeah, you don't want to miss that shot. The solstice sunset shot. And you, oh, yeah, I missed it. Yeah. Shit. <laughs> Better luck next year. Yeah, well, that's just that you you don't get it, then, yep, you're coming back. Well, Equinox was nice. You can just come back in six months, but the uh, summer and winter, that's a little more. But, yeah, you have a couple of days where you could probably get a good shot of the, the alignment. So try to get a little bit more of that and really show people that, you know, if you have this ancient civilization that's, you know, so multi-layered with ties to the Bible and ties to Stonehenge and mathematics and geometry and a race of giants and all this stuff that's involved and you can just go to Ohio and see you don't have to go to Europe, you don't have to go to Egypt who wants to go to Egypt anyway um, but you have this fascinating thing right here in, in North America that, that can be viewed No, that is true it's, it's, it, is, it is opening up and it's nice to hear um, these, these accounts and from people yourself, like yourself that you know, North America, it has more history than we think, right? It's so, it's only like three or 400 years. Everybody thinks it's so new. So that's good. So where can people get your, uh, get your books then, Fritz? Uh, well, it's, it's available. You can go to Barnes & Noble to order it for you. I would suggest not to. Um, but I would just order it from Amazon because they have some nice reductions and uh, free shipping. I think if you buy volume one, volume two, shipping is free. Um, we got about a $10 discount on the book right now. Um, so they've got a really good price on it. But uh, Amazon's the best and makes for a great Christmas gift since we're coming into that season. Good point. Yeah, and as always, Grimericans, always go through the Grimerica Amazon portal before you buy Fritz's book so that we can get our little slice of heaven, too. Oh, well, I didn't know that existed, but sure. It's not really a portal. It's just a button that you click on, but it helps uh, It helps us. Portal. <laughs> so um, what about uh, contacting you through, do you have uh, Facebook, Twitter, anything like that? Yeah, for Timmerman, I'm on Facebook. Um, I have the Nephilim Chronicles page on Facebook where I usually post a giant um, skeleton or two about every day. It's for ongoing fun. Yeah, that sounds good. Um, when you're sitting at your desk and don't feel like working, you can read the Giants account. And uh, so, yeah, I'm pretty prevalent. I have Giant Human Skeletons blog spot, Nephilim Chronicles blog spot. I put stuff on there. And so, generally, if you look up Giant Skeletons on the internet, you're probably going to hit one of my blogs or one of my pages. But I don't put it all in there because really the fascinating thing is, is the why and the how, not just reading the giant skeletons. It's the backstory, it's the symbolism and the history and where they came from. And oh, that's all the, the really good juicy stuff. So I post, you know, the giant accounts on there, but 
the really good stuff is in the book. Yeah. Kind of planned it that way because I don't give it all away. But all in all, the good stuff is in the book about all the information and details. Yeah, it's definitely loaded full of accounts. That's for sure. I can I can attest to it. I, I listened to the thing uh, on audio again. So, um, Fritz, we want to really thank you for for coming on the Grimerica show. Hopefully, we can have you back maybe after your your third book comes out. Yeah, and of course, yeah, I'm. Uh, yeah, maybe by the spring I uh, may have that uh, volume three out. So it's going to be a nice supplement because there uh, there have been a lot of real interesting finds and all the photos I have of some mummies, mummified remains. I have some mummified remains of a nine footer um, um, that I found, and uh, those are fascinating. And they have a guy from the Smithsonian standing next to it. And the Smithsonian said that that photo was a fake, that it was made out of jello, I think is what the, they said, but they bought it anyway. Interesting. They yeah. bought Jello Man. They yeah. bought Nine Foot Jello Man and hauled him back to the Smithsonian, even though they said, yeah, we're buying him, but he's just made out of jello. <laughs> I didn't even know they had jello in. 1910 or 15, whatever this account came from, but it's, uh, yeah, some, some more good stuff will be coming down the road. That was our with Fritz Zimmerman. Fritz Zimmerman. That's what I said. Yep. Yeah, that was a good the, one. The Nephilim Chronicles. So you you didn't really know much about these giants and stuff. So what did you think after that? It was uh, pretty interesting. Well, I kind of I did I definitely didn't know anything about the North American aspect of it. Like we've talked with, we had Scotty Roberts on and we talked about um, the Nephilim quite a bit and giants and stuff like that. We touched on. But it was always in the biblical sense and over, you know, in Europe and Jerusalem and places like that, never in Ohio. Yeah, exactly. And and so prevalent too, right? And and the copper mining and all these fascinating things, yeah. Pretty crazy. I think they'll find all that copper in the when they find the labyrinth. The walls will be coated in it. In Ohio fucking copper. The the labyrinth? Yeah, you know the labyrinths in Egypt? No, I don't know. The fucking labyrinth, dude. Ugh. Anyway, Who wants to go to Egypt? I'd like to go to Egypt. <laughs> Who wants to go to Egypt? No, I'd like to go to Egypt for sure. Uh, I'd definitely like to behold the pyramids and stuff like that. Who knows? Maybe one of these years I'll go on the Exodus tour. Yeah. Yeah, it's worth it. You can go. It's. Have you been? I spent a month at least in Egypt. So. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, thought you, I thought you were talking about the Exodus tour. Oh, no. But uh, I did want to say I made a couple of mistakes on previous shows talking about Fritz Zimmerman uh, on Audible. I thought he had four audiobooks. Three of those are actually radio TV programs. So there's like uh, Ancient Aliens, Nephilim in North America, Giants Once Roamed the Earth, and Ohio Earthworks, The Great Circle. So, yeah, not exactly audiobooks, but uh, still there on Audible for you to check out. Yep, and that's, uh, as always, audibletrial.com forward slash Grimerica. And you'll get it for free. 
get what for free? You get the audio book. Oh, for yeah, free. yeah, yeah. Come on, man. Keep hey, up. Audible's great. I got two credits available, and I, and I have to choose uh, what books I have. So every month I get these free credits. It's crazy. So hopefully this whole Giants thing will open up a little bit and we can have Fritz back on after his third book comes out. I mean, can you imagine 500 accounts of these Giants bones? Yeah, there's probably more than that. I'd like to see one just fucking turn up today and they'd be like all over YouTube. Wouldn't you like to just bust into the Smithsonian one day and go down deep, deep down into their layers Let's and do see it. all these giant bones Let's and do it. No, just kidding. Disclaimer, we're not breaking and, into the Smithsonian. All tagged and, you know, all tagged and, you know, nine foot here, nine and a half nine foot there. Nine footers, ten footers. Anyway, I think that uh, about wraps it up again. Big thanks. Big thanks to Fritz for coming on. Um, and who's next? Uh, next David Weatherly. Be, yeah, David Weatherly will be our last interview before Christmas. Um, it might, the timing might work out that we, we don't even really miss a beat um, because we've got, we're actually getting to the point where we've got a pretty healthy thing going on. Uh, we're not scrambling around every week trying to get an episode. We're starting to have a good system going. So um, the episode should come right through Christmas. We might take it. It might go two weeks without one when we go into January. But uh, stick with it. And thanks for coming out. Yeah, thanks for listening. As always, everything will be in the show notes, the music uh, you heard, and everything Fritz talked about, all his websites, his Twitter, his Facebook, all that will be in the show notes, all the music. Thanks for listening, guys. We'll see you next week. Email graham at grahamerica.com. Graham